we've had we've had two episodes in a row now where i've gone on a tangent about southern freaks and i'm like well i can't do that again can't do that again <laughs> bring out bring out the freak flag just, just you, go ahead you <laughs> totally must though you must <laughs> totally not intentional I, that we've had these like back to back to back that i like that but i'm like holy shit here we go again savannah georgia a microcosm of a kind of South, one full of irony, one full of wealth and poverty. This little city, Oglethorpe's colony, was spared by Sherman's march to the sea, and its residents might think that this provides it some kind of authenticity. One full of old money, an old South, but nonetheless a new South, arrives. Today we consider this city, its cast of characters, and a true crime as we look at midnight in the garden of good and evil. This narrative emphasizes that Savannah, Georgia is a place full of possibilities. Join us as we consider these possibilities here at the Projectionist Lending Library. Hey, welcome y'all. Welcome to the Projectionist Lending Library. We are here today to talk about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the nonfiction novel by John Barrent, and then the subsequent 1997 film directed by Clint Eastwood, starring John Cusack, Kevin Spacey, and Lady Shibley, who is the star of the show. I am here with my co-host today, Nathaniel Booth. And we also are joined by a special guest to discuss this work with us. Do you want to introduce yourself, Steph? Sure. Hi, my name is Steph Arker. I work at Rice University in the writing program. I went to grad school with these wonderful folks. And I'm happy to be here today to chat about a book that I didn't even know was a book when I first watched the movie. So Yeah, we um when we were talking about this season, we sent you a list of the things we were looking at and you zeroed in on this book and said you'd be yeah. interested in it. But we were just talking before the show. At that point, you had just seen the movie. Is that right? Yes. What I really zeroed in on was John Cusack, who I had just seen in a movie. Uh, and there was so much cool. I was like, Southern, like gender, sexuality, you know, like it had all the pieces of things that I certainly love to talk about when it comes or came to literature, which I mm -hmm. kind of moved away from in my career. But yeah, lots to say about gender and sexuality in this oh, yeah. nonfiction novel. Nonfiction. Yeah. And you kind of wave your Wave your fingers, do the air quotes. I did, you said. I did yeah. square uh, the scare quotes. Yeah, the I did. The nonfiction novel. I actually saw an interview with Berent, and mm -hmm. he talked about how much he resisted that mm -hmm. sense of the novel. He's like, it's journalism. It's nonfiction. Yeah. And that, to me, is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard him on a podcast called Queer and Now, where he was talking about how he liked to characterize this book. He's like, I think it's literary nonfiction. He really wanted to insist it's literary nonfiction. It's not a nonfiction novel. And it's not creative nonfiction. It's literary nonfiction. Like, I swear, some of these, I mean, I think this is, part of this is an anxiety of writers wanting true crime to be taken seriously. Because obviously mm -hmm. the whole nonfiction novel, like that sort of 
thing comes from Capote and In Cold Blood, which we'll be doing later this season. But he's like, I invented a new genre. It's called the nonfiction novel. It's like, this is just creative nonfiction about a true crime, dude. And that's the same with this. Mm -hmm. And to call it just straight up nonfiction would be wildly inaccurate. I was surprised when I realized some of the differences in terms of like, I mean, not even just the case, but like, his involvement with it. When I was reading the book, I'm like, why the fuck is he here? Like, what's he even doing here? Because like, he's just there just mingling around this New Yorker down in Savannah, mingling with all these Mm -hmm. like weird cast of characters. He's like, I think I'm going to stay around for a while and blah, blah, blah. And then this murder happens. But in fact, the murder had happened and he had gone after the murder. And, And so like that first I don't know, 100, 150 pages of the book is like pretty much fictionalized, I think. I mean, I think some of those things happen, but the way that he writes it into a narrative is very fictionalized. Yeah. I want to push back just a little bit about characterizing this as true crime, though. It is true crime, but I think that he's less interested in the crime than he is in uh, Savannah. Yeah, totally. And the people and just like Mm -hmm. the spectacle of it all. There's a moment in the, I'm going to say in the book, so I don't have to characterize it in genre. Right. But there's a moment in the book where Shabli says, um, the South is one big drag show. And I mm-hmm. felt like that was such a perfect line for this whole piece, right? That was like, such, yeah. such a perfect line, period. I noted that too. That was really early on. Shablis is definitely the star of both the book and the movie. Like the, yes. like the best part of oh, both yeah. of them. What you were saying, Nathaniel, I, I agree with that. But I think that's often true of a lot of true crime, not all the time. But specifically, I wanted to ask you, because it sort of reminded me of it in in many different ways. And I know you've written on it. S-Town, New Yorker coming to the South about some gay people and a murder. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Like, I just had a lot of S-Town vibes. And I know you've written an article on that. So I was wondering if you thought about that at all. You know, I did not while I was reading the book, mainly because I was thinking about other things that maybe we'll get to in a bit. But now that you mention it, yeah, there's a definite similarity between S-Town, both in the sense that it's a New Yorker coming to the South and getting involved in this very sort of uh, homoerotically tinged crime caper thing. But also in that in both cases, the crime, the ostensible crime, is kind of an excuse for doing other things. In the case of S-Town, it very quickly becomes apparent that the murder that he's supposed to be investigating isn't really a murder. And then he becomes interested, the reporter, in other things. In this case, because of the way that the author reorganizes the narrative, even though he went down to actually look at this murder— it becomes an excuse for him to meet all of these quirky characters in in Savannah and Savannah itself, which is the real star of, of this piece. It's curious because they're both, it's a New Yorker coming to the South and looking at these things. It, it's very different depictions of the South and Southerners, but both are so fucking stereotypical. Like with yeah. S-Town, like it's like, oh, it's these fucking rednecks and blah, blah, blah. And then with this, it's, oh, it's that old money, old South gentrified. But both of them, at least for me, I can't help but feel that the author of these texts, and we, we'll stick to, I don't want to keep on the S, S-Town comparison, but it seems really clear to me, the author is just a tourist walking around just being like, why, look at this. Look at this. Mm -hmm. 
oh man, y- y'all got, y- you're not even going to believe this. Like that's mm-hmm. how so much of it feels for better or worse. I'm not saying that's like a terrible thing about it, but that's definitely like a vibe in the book, especially just the structure of the book. Yeah, we should say something. We should give a, a thumbnail sketch of the structure and basic events. Yeah, probably like hey, the on. plot and then, yeah, the structure. Yeah, yeah you want to. Well, I mean, basically this the, – the narrator in this book is allegedly the author, but for the first third, he's kind of a fictional construct. He goes down to Savannah one day, and he likes it so much he decides to stay there, <laughs> as one does, I guess. And the whole first third of the book is just him going to different places and seeing different people, not just in the upper crust. It's all strata because he's got this neighbor. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Odom. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe. Joe Odom. Joe Odom. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Love him. He's <laughs> he's like the ultimate. Like he's from that Capra movie. You can't take it with you. With that that household full of quirky people who just like steal their electricity and they never pay taxes and that sort of thing. That's Joe Odom. (laughs) And uh, he's got a hairdresser that works in there who actually appears in the movie as himself, which is interesting. Mm. And so all strata of society and along the way he meets this guy, Williams, who is an antique dealer. He's part of the sort of restoration of Savannah. So through this, we get, depictions of the social life of Savannah, but we also get this sort of interesting history. So it becomes a biography of the town in that first part, which made me think of, uh, for instance, because I've been doing a lot of stuff with a lot of private, like watching of interviews with Alan Moore, uh, because Mm -hmm. I find his voice so soothing. And so I just sit there and I just listen to him talk about Northampton and all this stuff. <laughs> and the one of his favorite ideas is that Northampton is the center of the universe, that all the most important things that ever happened in England happened in Northampton. So it made me think that the author of Midnight is kind of doing for Savannah the exact same thing mm. that Moore does for Northampton. He is like Savannah is r- literally the center of the universe. And it's this weird insular place that isn't even really Southern because they don't Mm -hmm. like being associated with the rest of the South. They're their own thing. Can I read this? And this is in the afterword. This is like, he finishes his whole thing and in, in just kind of characterizing Savannah. He says the tourists would leave Savannah in a few hours enchanted by the elegance of this romantic garden city, but none the wiser about the secrets that lay within the innermost glaze of its secluded bower. I, too, had become enchanted by Savannah, but after having lived there for eight years, off and on, I had come to understand something of its self-imposed estrangement from the outside world. Pride was part of it. Indifference was, too, and so was arrogance. But underneath all that, Savannah had only one motive, to preserve a way of life it believed to be under siege from all sides. Mm -hmm. He depicts it as this kind of, yeah, a place like out of place and out of time. Um, Mm -hmm. which is why you have, I mean, the cast of characters is super rich. You mean rich is in terms of their money or in terms of their, the the (laughs) amount and diversity? A lot of them. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like both. It's not like it's depicting this specific, like aristocratic blah, blah, blah. Although I do love, I, this is in the movie. I don't remember this line in the book. I feel like I would have highlighted it. Kelso, John Kelso is the character's name. 
I think he says to his editor or something, but he describes it as gone with the wind on mescaline. Oh, mm-hmm. I wrote that down when I was watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, I kept thinking that like depictions of Savannah felt like I was thinking like Panhandle, Florida, which is like mm-hmm. weird as fuck, but like a fancy rich version of that. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Like the weirdness yeah. of that without any of the like the weirdness of Florida, but with the class of Georgia. I've never been to like the Georgia coast down there. Oh, yeah. So I've been to Savannah once. It's a beautiful city. I mean, it really is. And obviously, like the Savannah I went to, that would have been in 2012 or 13 or 14 or somewhere in there. Much more gentrified and modernized than the the Savannah Mm -hmm. that we see in this book or see in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think between the publication of this book and the production of the movie and Savannah now, like a lot has gone down, especially, you know, in the book, they talk about like, oh, SCAD just arrived, the Savannah Mm -hmm. College of Art and Design. And now like that's like an institution. And so I think there's a lot of things that probably when I was there, it was very different from when they were there. But I I have been there and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I was just going to say I'm from Alabama. And so I've Mm -hmm. been through lots of Georgia, but just not Savannah specifically. But Savannah always had a feeling of being fancy. Like that's how I felt about like going to Savannah was like fancier than going to Atlanta, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, isn't it, and, and just kind of historically, this is more, I think for listeners, but he mentions George Tecumseh Sherman a couple of times in the book, but mm-hmm. Savannah is famously like the one city that was spared in the burning of Georgia and the sack of Georgia of, of General Sherman, where in the civil war, they basically burned all of Georgia to the ground. And mm-hmm. Savannah was, yeah spared they were like okay i don't i don't remember why and that's one of the reasons that it it sort of has that fancy allure to it is it is one of if not the only place in georgia that has architecture that old because otherwise Mm -hmm. everywhere else it was burned down Mm -hmm. and in that old architecture there is a house called the mercer house and the man (laughs) that uh john barrett meets called jim williams lives there he's an antiques dealer he's kind of a he's a bachelor He's a bachelor. Mm, a southern bachelor. He's a southern, a southern bachelor. A southern bachelor <laughs> that he kind of has a, not rags to riches story, but he's from a very, very, very middle class, like whatever background. I think he said his dad is a barber or something. And so he's sort of like this self-made man. So he's this nouveau riche person in Savannah, which is just a town of old, old, old Southern money. At one point, but they're as like, yeah, he likes like, to point out, all right, that yeah. really matters is the riche. That yes, he says that right. Um, <laughs> Jim Williams, as an antiques dealer and a re- and a restorer of antiques, he hires different people to help restore furniture, different pieces, and and things like that. And one of them that he hires as a apprentice type person is named what Danny Hansford. Yeah, it's Danny Hansford because in the movies Billy Hansen. For some mm-hmm. reason. Okay. Yeah. No, they changed. They did change names in the movie from the book. I know that, which is weird because I also know that he changed names in the book from real people. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but some of them. Maybe that was one that he didn't change. So yeah, Danny Hansford. How would y'all describe this young gentleman? I feel like the Confederate flag tattoo on his arm is alone a good descriptor. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. He is a troubled young man. His Confederate um, tattoo and his fuck you t-shirt. And that um, the moment, you know, where he's visiting the graveyard 
and he's mm-hmm. thinking about, oh, if I can die in the fancy Mercer house, I'll get one of these big fancy tombstones. To me, yeah. just that like naivete of that, yeah. you know, like the simplicity of his thinking and that is very much that character. Yeah, 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 he's he's got a lot going on in the book. He's got that simplicity you talk about. He's got that Confederate flag tattoo. He's also incredibly violent. He acts out both towards Williams and also towards girls that he tries to get with. He has fits of rage. He's he's an addict. I don't know if he's ever described with that specific term, but he's fucked up the entire time that we see him, which admittedly isn't a lot, but the way that mm-hmm. then he's then described later on, it's just like, okay. And he's, he's also financially disadvantaged, shall we say, which right. leads mm-hmm. him to becoming what Gore Vidal would have called trade. He sells sexual favors to rich older men. And some older women. He's a good time, not yet had by all. That's uh, right. And a streak of sex, right? Yes, I was going to find the yeah. chapter title, Streak yeah. of Sex. Yeah, and so he he winds up dying in, in the house that he hoped that he would die in, but maybe not in the way he expected. Well, he died from being shot. He died from being shot <laughs> three times. Yeah, so he's shot. And it's what, at like 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And Williams is there and Williams shot him. Jim Williams, yeah. the old, well, middle-aged bachelor antiques dealer. Yeah, and he subsequently, uh, Williams is arrested for this and right. tried. And to very quickly wind this plot description up so that we can talk about some of the themes, he's tried, found guilty, tried again because new evidence comes up. Found guilty again, tried again, found guilty again, and then tried again and finally exonerated for whatever value of exoneration there is in play there. Mm-hmm. And uh, importantly, and tried in Augusta and A- exonerated, Augusta. right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. like Savannah condemns, 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 mm-hmm. and then Augusta says, yeah. Augusta says, well, yes. And, yeah. and one of them was a mistrial, right? And then two of them were overturned by the state Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are all these different ways that he kind of gets out of these murder convictions. And so then, yeah, like, obviously a big part of the the book sort of focuses on, was it, I mean, the the trial is, was it self-defense or was Mm -hmm. it premeditated murder? Because they charge him with first-degree murder. And his claim is that Danny had, oh, oh, because... He has a shit ton of Nazi memorabilia. Let's talk about that. In a oh bit. yeah, that's so, right. That's so, right. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so Danny, he's a collector. He's he wants a collector that just flies the Nazi banner out in Lafayette mm-hmm. Square. But like, so the Danny had, you know, was apparently like sort of throwing a fit and had grabbed one of Williams's Luger's that he has laying around, loaded and ready to go. And like you do. Like you do. Mm -hmm. And he allegedly shot at Williams and missed. And then Williams took out one of his Lugers in his desk. Because, again, he has these fucking everywhere, apparently. And pulled his one out of his desk and shot him. And so his Mm self-defense is is his claim to it. And so then there's a big murder trial. And that goes through a lot of different iterations. And eventually eventually exonerated, yes. At the time, this was apparently the most... The most number of times that someone had been tried for the same crime, Four at times, least in Georgia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he gets, he gets, finally gets free. He gets to celebrate it for you know a little bit, and then promptly drops dead 
of a heart attack. And in the room. In the room. Where he shot Danny. Where where he shot Danny. Yeah. I did really identify with, with Williams at the point where he said, I could move, but staying here pisses off the right people. <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing about Williams. He's a tremendously troubling figure because, yeah, he's got the Nazi memorabilia. Yeah, there's, you know, at least a 50-50 chance that this was a cold-blooded murder rather than self-defense. But he is just so his own person. And so just totally self-regarded that I couldn't help but feel tremendous respect for him by the end of the book. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's true of Berenta as well, right? Like, I think that's one of the reasons why he was so compelled by this and stuck around here for as long as he did, because he is, Williams is a compelling character. Um, Yeah, and we, we definitely see, like, him through Berenta's fascination right i mean even the the descriptions of i remember there's this one moment where it's like jim is sitting and he's like stroking his cat Mm -hmm. and there's the picture of the coffee table book which has the picture of the room that they're sitting in at a time which is just this again like perfect for the whole piece just this kind of moment and it's like yeah i mean there's definitely something about jim williams right Mm -hmm. yeah Well, I mean, in that, there's a weird sense in which Williams is kind of an outsider in Savannah for all he's been doing, right? He's not in some of the best clubs. And so you've got all of that going on. But in that self-regard and having the coffee table book of the house on the table in the house, he's almost the perfect vision or microcosm of Savannah, He's the most Savannah thing in this whole book, even if he exists kind of on the margins of traditional Savannah society, which is interesting, I think. What happened? Oh, that Jim Williams went and shot somebody. Can I pay? My client has nothing to say. You'd like to spike that up? There's a bar right there. No, thank you. I'm still on duty, Mr. Williams. The place is fantastic. It's like gone with the wind on Mescal. It's just a shooting, but give it time. It's going to be rather sticky for Jim. Listen to me. They walk imaginary pets here, Garland, and they're all heavily armed and drunk. New York is boring. I'll call you later. All rise. They're trying to put our friend away for life. I'm innocent, John. It's important that you believe that. (laughs) (laughs) To understand the living, you gotta commune with the dead. True story and deliciously evil, don't you think? Do you want to tell me what really happened that night? Truth, like art, is in the eye of the beholder. Okay, so that's basically the plot. Where do we want to go with this? Uh, Do we want to talk about fact and fiction? I think you had some thoughts on this. Well, we brought up just the absurdity of all the different ways that people describe nonfiction already, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like, is it creative nonfiction? Is it literary nonfiction? I taught a nonfiction class at Syracuse, and we spent so much time talking about this because everybody kept asking, but what is creative nonfiction? You know, (laughs) like, how does that really get classified? And who decides? And I think that it is incredibly, incredibly tricky. And I feel like 
there is this, I think that, I think we said it earlier when we were chatting, but it's kind of a defensiveness when yeah. it gets labeled somehow there's a hint that it's not true, which is what the word novel does. Yeah, exactly. And we mentioned that there's absolute layers of fictionalization here. He changes the names of some of the characters, mm -hmm. which that's, you know, some of the names have been changed to protect the innocent. That's right, pretty right, right, standard. Right. That's pretty standard uh, in this genre. He, in true crime, yeah. moves around events. So like some things that took place after he got to Savannah, he moves to before he literally came to Savannah right. so that he could set up the world. And in an interview I saw with him, he actually talks about this pretty openly. He wanted to give a taste of Savannah before he got to the murder. He didn't want to just start off with the murder. And so he moves his own trip there. And in so doing, he creates basically a fictional version of himself right. that moves to Savannah, lives there, meets Joe Odom and the whole group that's at his house meets the the guy that walks the invisible dog oh meets yeah. luther the man that can poison the whole city luther yes. the man that could poison the whole city yeah now it, but see what's interesting is his presentation of these different characters have been contested by the actual people so mm. for instance luther was apparently very upset with the way <laughs> he was presented in this and yeah, he's depicted to, just as an absolute weirdo he carries around a vial of poison that he could pour into the water at any time and kill the whole city allegedly he comes mm -hmm. into the yeah. cafe every day and he'll look at it and then decide if he wants to eat it or not and then mm -hmm. he'll leave and they'll be like he ate it it's a good day or he didn't eat it it's a bad day yeah mm -hmm. don't yeah. drink the water don't right? drink the water yeah like if i was but this I guy and any of that was remotely exaggerated i would be mad too because he's made mm -hmm. to look like an absolute lunatic yeah but i I feel like that totally comes around to what you were saying about S-Town and mm -hmm. that idea of like the New York, you know, somebody from New York coming into the South and seeing what they, seeing that, right? Mm -hmm. So like, here's this person who, of course, Luther, who is a full human, who has lots of these <laughs> different traits, right? But instead, because you're fascinated in, by the spell of the idea of the south you're just um you're sort of blowing up these eccentricities which i feel like is in a weird way i feel like i did which i don't know if this is true for y'all so like i'm from alabama right spent mm -hmm. my whole life there and then lived in syracuse new york for four years which interestingly is where our author is from i saw mm -hmm. john oh, okay. um, Ferent is from syracuse right but when i after being in syracuse when i came back home things that felt commonplace to me before like the fact that my uncle is a cattle farmer and you know mm -hmm. what I mean just like normal being in Alabama stuff suddenly seemed a little more interesting because it was so different than yeah. the environment I was in and the people I was around and I mm -hmm. suddenly was seeing the south through that same lens when you're in it it's not interesting right it's just yeah. like you know uh all the normal stuff Booth, maybe you can chime in on some of the other like southern isms yeah it's weird like i i have a weird relationship with the south i don't um, hate the south i don't hate it i, I don't, don't hate, hate the it. south i don't hate the south i don't hate it i don't okay so i'm gonna tell a story that i don't know this may this may piss eric off just a little bit but you remember we read tobacco road Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the class with, I don't know, maybe it was a 50-50 northern-southern split. I was reading this book, and I was like, yeah, this this all sounds right. 
students from the north were like, wow, he's really drawing these southerners in a bad light. He's making them look so bad. And I'm like, no, no, I know these people. They live down the <laughs> yes. street from me. Yes. It's, yes. <laughs> it's, this isn't this isn't weird. This is just the south <laughs> i can't imagine that's fucking true man it is absolutely no true. no no i'm like, gonna there's I, so I will, much exaggerated I you, shit i will take you to muscle shoals one day and let you meet some of the people in muscle shoals alabama just on Y'all, the street. My granny lives in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. <laughs> <is> mine. <laughs> oh Lord. Y'all, my granny is a Japanese woman living in Muscle oh, Shoals, Alabama. Gosh. She has stories. I mean, I... Granny could tell you stories about when she came to Alabama, right? Like oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love to hear those. That that sounds yeah amazing and also kind of scary <laughs> it is terrifying that's that's actually the next project i'm working on is mm. like southern like japanese and japanese american identity in the south because it is yeah. it's yeah but um no i'm i haven't read the book y'all are talking about but i sign on with booth that whatever yeah. representation that was terrible is real and true i think it was flannery o'connor that said that whenever we write about real things in the south people in new york always assume that it's grotesque but it's just everyday life (laughs) well yeah she said that uh the reason that southerners always write about freaks is they recognize them that they you know we see them every day kind of because because they're kinfolk is the reason so part of the thing that i would say with tobacco road has its own exaggerations but erskine caldwell and you have seen their faces which is that Mm -hmm. photojournalism piece with margaret burke white who is his wife i will say that that is exaggerated and I mean, it's absolutely fabricated because he presents this whole thing with quotes from all of the people in the pictures. And they're all these really like grotesque pictures. And he'll say stuff like, Paul's taking me fishing today and just has this really kind of stereotypical shit. He fictionalized all of these quotes, but they're all in this photojournalism book with quotes around it. I mean, Erskine Caldwell had a fucking agenda. He was a eugenicist that thought white trash should be euthanized, not euthanized, yeah. sterilized. So, like, I, I do think that Tobacco Road definitely includes, I mean, just the opening turnip fight scene. Just, I don't know, man. I don't know. Y'all know better than I do. But I am saying <laughs> that Erskine Caldwell had a fucking agenda when he wrote about the white South. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. I'm just saying every person from above the Mason-Dixon line who reads that shit is all like, oh, that's so exaggerated. It's so grotesque. And everyone from below it is like, no, I'm I I know these people. But like it is very much that sense of the South, though, where it's like mm -hmm. if you it depends on where you're talking about in the South. Right. Savannah Mm -hmm. is a different world than rural Georgia. You know what I mean? And so. Tuscaloosa is a very different world than small pockets of like Northwest Alabama. So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about this, what, what are we saying about the style in this book? The the manner of writing. Does the Uh, book feel like disjointed to y'all? It feels episodic. Yeah. I really dug that. Yeah. You did. I yeah. sometimes did, and I sometimes didn't. It was probably just in the mood with which I approached it. But it almost felt like the chapters were almost like mini essays. Mm-hmm. And so some of them I really loved. And then some of them I'm like, I don't care. And I just really kind of flipped through it. 
which I think makes sense because of his background as like a magazine article writer. It it really there are a lot of times where where it really feels like it's a series of essays, kind of loosely in chronological order, but the overarching narrative feels lost sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it only sometimes bothered me depending on what was going on in the chapter. Yeah, I think I dug it because it's like digression is the lifeblood of Southern conversation. Mm-hmm. And like you get somebody on the hook for something they really want to hear. And you're still going to spend 10 minutes telling the history of Uncle Johnny's story <laughs> at the liquor store. You know what I mean? Like it's it's still very true to me to just the way that the kind of disjointed or I don't even know if disjointed but just the very fluid way that Mm -hmm. or like organic way that stories get told in 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 southern speak yeah and it it also contributes to the book's sort of ethnographic feel I think where Mm -hmm. like you're going to talk about you know have a chapter talking about a party you can have a chapter talking about the black cotillion you're going to have a chapter where you visit a small town get or a Savannah gay bar. Well, in this book, Savannah is constructed as a small town. Each chapter is sort of a dive into a different aspect of Savannah life. And so, again, the main character of this book is really Savannah. So what and, about the – what about the – no, sorry. Go ahead, Nathaniel. No, you were going to ask about the psycho dice? I was. <laughs> yeah. I want to do it. Does anybody have some well, dice? Is, I feel I've like got, <laughs> I've got dice, but they're all D and D dice. I think that might screw with the oh, no. system a little no, bit. No, I don't think so. I, I think that I think I meant, the concept should still hold. I meant to look it up. Study was there a Duke mm-hmm. University study? I'm gonna look it up while y'all talk about. Please, please else. do. So, uh, psycho dice is, and this ties into something that we haven't really talked about in the novel or the book. And, and this even goes back to, you know, him collapsing dead. There's witchery mm. afoot and mm-hmm. in the, in the backgrounds of, in, in all of this <laughs> narrative and William sort of subscribes to it in a way because he really buys into this idea of like, if you think it, you can make it happen type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. basically the secret that phenomenon, I don't know, it was like 10, 15 years. I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was this weird phenomenon of, of I think it was a book. Was it a book? Yeah, it was a book. Oprah, Oprah really pushed it. Okay. But uh, it was basically where like you can sort of imagine and will things into existence and just mm-hmm. by just focusing on it. And if negative things happen in your life, it's because you're focusing on negative things. It really fucking weird self-help sort of thing that was... I don't think it was popular for very long, but I, I do remember it sort of taking everything by storm for a, a, a blip there. But anyway, so William sort of subscribes to that idea, and we see that with this game that he likes to call Psycho Dice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what what is Psycho Dice? I, I I mean, I think you just spoke right. You have this dice, and you like will the dice <laughs> to be whatever you want, right? So yeah. it's like you just focus on it and you think it and it will happen so it is very much the secret and i just looked it up it is a thing i mean not like psycho dice but the psychokinetic effect the first experiment a guy named joseph banks rhine yeah i'm looking at wikipedia right now he published his first edition in 34 of a book called extrasensory perception and that's when he was uh, uh later he's looking at psychokinesis we would all love to be psychokinetic. That would be fucking awesome. But I don't think 
his thing the thing like whenever it had the psycho dice he would like roll and it's a, it's a theory that you can't prove wrong because if it doesn't land on what you thought it was going to land on it's like mm-hmm. oh well you weren't thinking you hard were? enough yeah you should have focused <laughs> and then harder. it does land on it's like see yeah. Well, this is an it, old, old kind of flim flam that's like deeply American. Americans have believed in the power of positive thinking since the 19th century, at least. This idea that that you can attune yourself to the brainwaves of the universe. Well, I mean, it, I, I feel like part of that's deeply linked to this American gospel of wealth type of bullshit that it's it's paired with the idea that if you are not succeeding in life, it is because you are not oh, yeah. thinking hard enough. You are not trying hard enough, like mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It gets rid of all sorts of systemic shit. So of course America has this long history of it. And yeah, sometimes it'll package it into this sort of like economic austerity sort of message. And sometimes mm-hmm. it'll package it in this sort of transcendental, like, oh, tune yourself with the world sort of message. But mm-hmm. there are two sides of the same coin that you're right is deeply American and this sort of American pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is what Williams does in his yeah. life. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he subscribes to that shit. He's like, look for me. I was a barber's kid and now I'm multimillionaire with Napoleon's shit hanging in my office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me, I remember there, uh, Paul Piff, who's like a sociologist, one of my students did a project about this and like he did the study and found that like the more money people had, the more likely they were to think that Monopoly was a game of strategy. So mm-hmm. like even in Monopoly, the minute they were winning, they were convinced they were winning because they're great, you know? And That's if you're it, yeah. losing, then you see it as just luck. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Well, and this you know that history in- of Monopoly that like it was originally like there are two ways to play it. There was like no. the Monopoly version, and then there was a different one that was like it, it was meant to be like a sort of socialist game. So there were there were two different rules, and it like it came with both rule sets. So you could play it Monopoly, which is the game that we know. And the other one was mm-hmm. I, I don't know the rules of it, but it was very cooperative and everybody worked together to like achieve a goal and you would win type thing. But then when <laughs> Milton Bradley took it, they're like, We're getting rid of that socialist propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. This is Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This also plays into the way that voodoo plays into this book Mm -hmm. because Williams consults a lady who is deeply involved in various sort of voodoo practices and yeah Minerva he says pretty openly look I don't believe in the spirits and stuff that she's invoking but I believe in the practices I believe that doing the stuff Mm -hmm. can be efficacious he doesn't believe in necessarily like all of the witchcraft and spirits Mm -hmm. and stuff but he believes it in the way that you will some like in in the way of like his sort of secret thing that like minerva like believes all of this so she's helping him with it like she is helping will this thing into action along with himself okay i i think williams would definitely do sigil magic if he thought about it, he would be drawing them sigils and and burning them. Oh, yeah. I think that he would kind of turn to like any sort of thing if mm-hmm. it required a lot of willpower and thinking or believing something to happen. Like, I think he would give any of it a shot. Willpower is a good it's like he believes in his ability to control things, like mm-hmm. not necessarily buying into the idea that other powers are at play. Right. But he likes the yeah. process because it's very much psychodyne right? Yeah, if yeah. I burn this picture and draw on it, then I'm really focusing on the district attorney, which yeah. in turn can create these things to happen. 
Right. But importantly, he will not do things that require him to give up any sort of self-power. So one of the things Minerva tells him is, you've got to forgive yeah. the boy that you killed. And he says, I will not do that. I refuse to do that. Yep. And there's a way of reading this book to suggest that everything that happens to him is because he's looking at the the power, the control. He's not looking. He's not actually forgiving. And so... You know, if you wanted to read this in a Minerva friendly way, I think Minerva would probably say, yeah, no wonder he winds up dead at the end and he doesn't actually get what he wanted because he doesn't do the one thing he should have done, which is forgive. Well, yeah, I think that's part of like the sort of like mystery implication here. We see her kind of go back out to Danny's grave and it's like, oh, he's angry. I think that's part of the book. I mean, I know you were Mm -hmm. wanting to talk about if this is Southern Gothic or not, but with elements like that, I would say yes. I mean, if not, it's certainly playing with it in a nonfiction novel kind of way. Yeah, it's it's Southern Gothic adjacent in that the characters are all something I could find in like a... I can imagine them showing up in a Southern Gothic novel. The mode of telling seems to be what calls it into question for me a little bit in the book. Mm. His narrative voice. Before we started recording, I said it reminded me of Isherwood in the Berlin stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a very I am camera perspective to the extent that he he sort of evacuates his own subjectivity in a lot of ways the author is a gay man but unless you're looking for gay vibes which i mean i was but unless you're looking (laughs) for gay vibes then you're not going to see it i can imagine reading this book and coming away thinking that he's just totally heterosexual he's his prose is very lucid very easy to read he does not indulge in the sort of dark miasma that the the deep southern gothic writers tend to do i feel like what you said about his like the way that he presents itself i was thinking about that and it kind of comes back to like you mentioned the ethnography right Mm -hmm. and part of what any good ethnographer knows is that they are changing the landscape right Mm -hmm. like just by being there they are changing the things that are happening you know because you're not Mm -hmm. invisible and so Once I learn a little bit more about John, I do wonder how he's being read in these spaces. Like when he's entering Jim Williams' home, how is Jim Williams reading him and how does that change the sorts of things that are being said to him by members, by people in Savannah, you know? Well, I mean, Williams Uh, clocks him at once, right? Williams got his Right, that's right. Because the gentleman, because he asks him right away, that's right. Right away, he says, we've got a private party for bachelors, you can come to that one. (laughs) (laughs) No, Williams has his number from the beginning. So yeah, by the way, another sort of covert queerness here is Joe Odom in the book, He's presented as like a serial monogamist who's having kind of an affair with what, Mandy? And after the book came out, she said, no, we didn't have an affair. He was gay. We didn't have an affair at all. Oh, I got the vibe that he just kind of slept with everybody. I mean, maybe, maybe he did. Like in the book. I mean, that's what he's like. Oh, like I woke up and he's, there was a random guy in my bed. And he's like, oh, it happens all the time. I always wake up with random people in my (laughs) bed. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. And it was Johnny too, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Johnny. Or wait, no, is his name Johnny? Danny. 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 It was Danny. Yeah. 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 It was Danny. The the best piece of ass in Savannah, according to someone in the. (laughs) 
in the book. The last character that we really need to talk about before we take our break, of course, is Shiblis. Oh, the Lady Shiblis. Yeah. I love Just her. Just a dream. Just a dream. Amazing. Like, would have, like, I was so glad that she played herself so that I got to see a hint of what it would be like to be at one of her shows. Exactly. Um, so the Lady Shablis, do you want to go ahead and tell our listeners who is the Lady Shablis? I, I mean, I even fill in a description that I cannot do her justice. So the mm. Lady Shablis is this amazing drag performer, mm -hmm. but more than that, right? Just like a character of Savannah. She is the lady. She is the doll. Every room she's mm -hmm. in, she is the bitch right yep. so yeah she is just such an important person to the book and the film and she punches it up quite a yeah. bit right like she punches yeah. up this script and gives you so many really wonderful lines and moments uh, again to me the the most important line in the book the south is one big drag show you know yeah, yeah. she seems to have her finger on the pulse of savannah in a way mm -hmm. that feels really helpful yeah i saw her described as a greek chorus of the book mm -hmm. she's a part of everything and her relationship with the author is sort of set apart from everything so every time that they interact it's sort of a way to get commentary on everything in savannah yeah and it was really interesting to me to encounter her because this was in I don't want to say the early days, because obviously we've had trans people around for forever. But in terms of mainstream representation, she's like a fairly early example of a really positive trans representation, especially with this book coming out in the 90s. And so, um, yeah, the events take place in the 80s. It comes out in, I think, 94. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I appreciated was there was really no attention that the author pays specifically to it is and she was definitely a she not a he which in 1994 mm -hmm. i feel like this right now that whole thing would be way more contentious yeah like nodding vigorously yeah in the book you felt you know we're getting like john's view of savannah but for john it was that simple right mm -hmm. she is lady chablis but the movie did not handle it as well and it felt like you know lady chablis as a human she wasn't defined as a character by yeah. her trans identity yeah so it wasn't even that she was just mm -hmm. this larger than life person who you felt lucky to get to know and to the get book, to know, you know yeah and and to john barrett's credit his writing of her dialogue is fantastic. She, in both the book and the movie, was my favorite part of both. It's it's like oh, when the, it's, it's when it's most alive. When it's about Williams, it's just it's so dead. There's a there's <laughs> a joke about it, you know, murder, you know. Yeah, there there's a certain there's a certain way, you know. Y'all y'all mentioned she functions as a Greek chorus, and we see this in the movie as well the scene where she visits the cotillion without mm -hmm. being invited and she basically swans around and she punctures all of these rich people's sort of vision of themselves she is the sort of living rebuke to the myth of savannah gentility the myth of like oh yes we're so sophisticated we're a special city set apart from everyone and she is the thing that says that's not the case. 
In right. fact, you are all of you pretending you're all in drag, right? There's that you're all in drag. drag. You're yeah. all in drag. You're all putting on a performance. The difference, quoth Lady Chablis, is I know that I'm performing and you right. don't. Yeah. And the South, it's like the South is and still is today. I feel deeply now that I'm back in Texas, you know, mm -hmm. the South is all about appearances. Appearance is everything, mm -hmm. which is just throughout this book because it is throughout Southern identity. And I think also Chablis to note, you know, she's upsetting. There's a number of moments in the book where they talk about interracial relationships are not mm -hmm. happening in Savannah. Yep. And there's this moment where he talks about this interracial couple that he always sees, right? Like 10 feet apart. And it's mm -hmm. like the black man is carrying the leash for a dog that the white woman is walking. So it's, yeah. there's this sense that it's separate. And Lady Chablis is a black woman and she has a white boyfriend, this blonde, blue-eyed boyfriend. A hunky white boyfriend. A hunk, right? Yeah, hunk. <laughs> a hunky white boyfriend who she is happy to make his family think that she's pregnant so they can <laughs> then get money because the man's family will give money for yeah. her to keep getting a Abortions, there's a line that she said, <laughs> I wrote it down somewhere, where she was like, yes, my dead interracial baby, you know, like, <laughs> don't kill my dead, and, and it's just, I mean, so yeah, there's so many ways in which she is flying in the face of mm -hmm. Savannah's of gentility. Right. Uh, Savannah, and honestly, she flies in the face of our gentility as well, because there were multiple times when I was reading her talking and I was like, I'm not sure that we can say that. And then I had to think, wait, no, this is a trans woman in the early 90s. She can say whatever the hell she wants. <laughs> yeah, She is not only a rebuke to like conservative Southerners, to some extent, she's a rebuke to contemporary good liberal people as well. She's, oh, yeah. Uh, she doesn't respect any boundaries. Kind of like Joe Odom in that way, right? Joe Odom's the other great <laughs> anarchic figure in this yes. book. These two figures of anarchy sort of rolling through Savannah and upsetting everything. You can't help but root for them, even though Joe's doing things like writing bad checks and stealing electricity and stuff. You're kind of like, no, no, man, you go for it. You do that. He'll right. squat at like a mansion for six months and throw <laughs> parties every day and host tours where people pay to go and then just, yeah, pick up and leave like, oh, they're coming I back. I'm um, telling you, man, from everyone who has to everyone who has need, Joe Odom and Lady Chablis are the future. A hundred percent. And they both offer such a rich, not wealthy rich, but like worthy of a lot of interpretation and focus of what audiences' expectations are going into this book mm -hmm. and going into the movie. Because, I mean, yeah. I vaguely remember this movie coming out when I was little, but it was all about this Southern gentility. That's how yeah. all of the sort of advertisement and stuff was branded. So I appreciate the way in which people might imagine it was going to be about. And then really the highlight of it is like these really kinds of transgressive characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning, America. <laughs> it's changed my life tremendously. The thing that it's done the most is I've met so many wonderful friends. Also, John Barron made me a promise when he wrote that book. He says, you're going to be famous, and he kept his promise. 
The thing about Savannah that has changed is I've met people who've lived here all their lives that I never knew, and they're here this morning. Everybody say, hey, good morning, America. <laughs> That's what Savannah's done for me. Sunny, and remember my boyfriend, Uga? The, the the dog down there, yes, yeah. yes, indeed. That's that's Uga number number. Is it uh, Sunny? Is it four or five? It's it's five, Charlie. It's five now, Sunny. What what's it? I, I was asking John what it's done to Savannah. What's it done to the folks? I, I know a lot of people were very uncomfortable at first with the book, but but now, as as we heard them saying in that in that tape piece, have, have really come to accept it and, and feel that John really got it right about the town. And we're back. We're moving on to the 1997 film, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is directed by Clint Eastwood. I didn't realize till we were getting ready to do this that this was an Eastwood movie. Does this feel very Eastwood to y'all? Only the length. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's two and a half hours long. It's, it's a long movie. It's two and a half movie. hours. It's a long movie. Um, feels unnecessarily such... long at a lot of points. I'm such a millennial. I was watching it thinking, this should just be an HBO series. They should just do Midnight as an HBO series. Well, talk about the secret. You just willed that into existence. That's going to be coming out <laughs> in the next two years. Well, I was thinking <laughs> if this were today, it wouldn't be a film. It would be a docu-series, right? Yeah. Or a podcast. A podcast, Like a right. murder podcast. And yep. it would be mm -hmm. very focused on the murder. I wasn't going to bring this up in recommendations because I don't even necessarily recommend it, but I did just watch Low Country on HBO, which is about the Murdoch mm -hmm. murders mm -hmm. and shit. And so it was just like watching that docuseries, it's three episodes. And at mm -hmm. watching it, I'm like, this is what Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil would have been if it were to come out today. Yeah. For yeah, sure. Which, which I really have to say, I am glad it is what it is. And it kind of comes back to what we were talking about when it comes to that idea of nonfiction and like, yeah. ooh, but what makes it creative nonfiction? I love that it's a fictional film because it is doing the good work of blurring those lines even further. I mean, the, right, yeah. like the lines are already blurred. And so I love that it doesn't get pitched as a accurate, real quote unquote representation of Savannah, but that it can just lean into to the more fictional elements that are honestly already there. I didn't see anything in at least the you know opening credits or anything like that. And I didn't even think to look for early previews, but it never says anywhere like based on a true story. Like, I mean, no. it's totally presented as fictional. I watched it with my wife, Elizabeth. And at one point I was explaining... I was explaining Lady Shibli. I'm like, it's so great that she like plays herself and she's like, wait, like this is a real story. And I'm like, oh yeah, it, it really doesn't present itself as true. Well, and they, they fictionalize so much, both in terms of recreating the narrator as Kelso. John Kelso. Who's left his cousin in Point Place, Wisconsin. And uh, they rearrange plot so he's got more of a reason to be involved in the plot than just, oh, I went down to Savannah and decided to stay and oopsie daisy, there's a murder. And they also condense the four trials into one trial. Which but... is missing a huge point. That was probably my biggest complaint about, I, I, I understand you have to make changes to the script and like everything for time, but like the fact that this movie was still two and a half hours and you condense it down to one trial, well, actually, no, it's two. They do have it into two. It's just that the first oh, trial, okay. they don't even show. It just That's goes right, straight yeah. to like guilty. And then he's in jail. Yeah. Which ironically, that first trial, it was the longest 
of the chapters about the trials. That one was the most in-depth, the most kind of play-by-play. I think the second one was where it's like the notes of a rerun and it's almost like little sketches. Mm -hmm. And then the other two just get kind of condensed into a few paragraphs. And so the one that was the longest in the book, they just have in, in a split second. Yeah. But then on the obverse of that, you mentioned, we have mentioned many times, the Lady Chablis is playing herself. They've actually got several people playing themselves. Emma Kelly, the pianist, is playing herself for okay. a scene there. The, the Jerry, woman of 6,000 songs? The woman of 6,000 songs. She's there singing three of her 6,000 songs. I did not realize that that was actually her. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, there's now 5,997 songs we've not heard. And then Jerry Spence, the, the hairdresser that worked in Joe Odom's house, that's him. Oh, that's the real Jerry Spence as the hair, hairdresser. Okay. Uh, and then Sonny Sailor, who was William's lawyer, plays the judge. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, and doesn't that just add to the hyper reality of it all? Because uh-huh. they're not playing themselves. They're playing the characters written by John Barrett. Yeah, exactly. To me, the the mix between like non-actors and actors is really interesting. You see this especially with the Lady Chablis. I mean, she's a performer, but she's not like a Hollywood actor. So right. you've got her and John Cusack, and the way that they interact with each other is so different than the way that Cusack interacts with, you know, even Kevin Spacey, let alone Allison Eastwood, who plays mm-hmm. Mandy. Clint Eastwood's daughter, right? Clint Eastwood's daughter, Yeah. And so the way that Cusack interacts with the Lady Chablis, it has a totally different quality. The minute I saw Spence, I was like, okay, that's the real guy playing himself or playing a version of himself. You can tell. How do you think that lends to, because obviously a a point of contention with the movie and with the book is that very fraught term that Southern Studies loves to throw around, authenticity. But how does that work? Like, how does authenticity work with that in in terms of the movie? Because, you know, we're talking about, oh, they're playing characters of themselves based on not just this book, but then the rewrite of this book between John Barron and I know there's one other guy as interpreted through Clint Eastwood's camera. And, you know, Clint Eastwood's a very weird person to be filming this kind of movie. I don't know. It, It puts so much pressure, not just on fiction versus nonfiction, but sort of artificiality versus Mm -hmm. authenticity but i feel like it's the coffee table book sitting of the room that you're in do you know what i mean so it's like that kind of like postmodern that to me is already there in the book that's why i love that it's a fictional film instead of the docu-series you know Mm -hmm. like it's it's already building on that artificiality hyper reality you know who savannah becomes the version of savannah that john writes because john writes that version of savannah and especially knowing that savannah tourism boosted after all this Mm -hmm. it is really interesting again the south is one big drag show it's really Uh interesting to think about savannah as performing to these expectations that have been written from an outsider who, as we already talked about, seeing the South from the outside, you like, 
those eccentricities that are just every day when you live in the South, then somebody put the magnifying glass on it. Like I remember when I visited, uh, cause my partner is from a super rural area. And when I visited, it was um, decoration day, which decoration, if you live in the South, you know, it's when you put flowers on the graves of your ancestors. And there were two grave plots that it was like, oh yeah, these are mine. Like his parents mm-hmm. had already bought him grave plots and they were there. And I was like, <laughs> that's just normal, right? But I was like, oh my God. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> like creepy and weird and very much what we're talking about, like the Southern yeah. Gothic sense. But he had never thought about it being that way because it's like, mm-hmm. no, this is just normal, right? It's what everybody does. Well, now I'm thinking about psycho dice. I'm thinking about (laughs) willing things to happen, willing things into existence. I'm thinking about voodoo and the the manipulation of signs as a way to manipulate reality. And I'm obviously thinking about Alan Moore saying that writing is a form of magic. By writing a thing, you can will it to existence. There is a sense in which the book, as you say, wills Savannah into existence. (laughs) It creates the world and then lives in it. And then Eastwood takes that one step further. And in the middle of all this, we have the Lady Chablis, who is a self-creatrix in multiple ways. And I believe I read somewhere she insisted on writing her own dialogue or ad-libbing some of her own dialogue in the movie. So she's performing herself in a movie where she's supposed to be performing herself as written, but she's performing herself as she writes herself. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. So it turns out magic is real. That's what we're getting from this podcast. Magic is real. And it was done by John Barant. Well, everything, the way we're describing this, my mind keeps going to like a sort of hall of mirrors. I know that Lady Chablis says the South is one big drag show, but in this book, do you think Savannah is also like a carnival? And I'm thinking yeah. specifically too of like, um, oh shit, what's the guy's name? The carnival-esque. Bakhtin? Bakhtin, yeah. Bakhtin and the carnival-esque. You're bringing Bakhtin into this? <laughs> <laughs> How pretentious so we got can you get it? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, isn't, isn't there a way that Savannah is also like this carnival i mean in in a literal sense especially i'm thinking of the chapter like that's on saint patty's day and he describes Mm -hmm. it as this is their version of mardi gras and and especially i think going back to the structure of it at least in the book as it's very sort of episodic it's like here's this exhibit here's this exhibit here's this exhibit and then in the book that carnivalesque comes out i think specifically more with the ornamentation the, mm. the costuming the setting his construction of savannah that he wills into existence as it is is very it's, it's a spectacle it's a spectacle for everyone else to sort of wonder at this is related to that but maybe We'll have to do a little bit of work to tie it in. I should note there's one other figure that's playing not himself, but his ancestor, and that's Ugga. Oh, Oh, right, of course. course. (laughs) Ugga in this movie is playing the Ugga from the book who died before the movie Mm -hmm. was made. And so they. I wonder which Ugga that was, because the Ugga in the book was Ugga the fourth. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I hate football so much, but. You should probably like, explain who Ugga is. Ugga <laughs> is a bulldog who's the mascot for the University of mm-hmm. Georgia's football team. And mm-hmm. 
So he's called Uga for UGA, and he gets special treatment. He gets special outfits. He probably lives a better life than most people in Georgia live. As much as I hate football, y'all have all been in Tuscaloosa. You know what I'm talking about. Football is carnival-esque, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's it's sure. a huge quasi-religious ceremony where the boundaries of proper behavior are turned upside down. And people do things that, you know, on a normal day of the week, you would probably cross the street to avoid them. The other way that we see college football sort of infiltrate the narrative is that Williams's second lawyer is like huge UGA fan, like hasn't missed a home game forever. And it worries Williams because he's like, well, if they lose, he's not going to be on his game. And especially through the lens of John Barrett, it's like, that is so bizarre. I was just going to say to also support this idea of like carnival that's happening. There's a moment in the book where they talk about the first question you get asked in Savannah is what do you want to drink? Right. Mm -hmm. Or like, how do you like your drink? And they play on that in the film as well, where Mm -hmm. she's standing. There's a woman and she's standing on a balcony talking down to um, John Cusack's character. And then she says, where are my manners? What would you like to drink? Right. It's like one of the first scenes of the movie. Right. And alcohol is a really big part of that sense or like any kind of libations. Right. That is such a part of released inhibitions and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely there. Don't they at some point describe Savannah as like a city of alcoholics? Isn't yes, that why? Yes, they do. In yeah. They do. yeah. He writes, Savannians drove fast. They also liked to carry their cocktails with them when they drove. According to the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, more than 8% of Savannah's adults were quote unquote known alcoholics, which may have accounted for the disturbing tendency of motorists to run up over the curb and collide with trees. Yeah. The trunks of all but one of the 27 oaks that line the edge of Forsyth Park and Whittaker Street, for instance, had deep scars at fender level. One tree had been hit so many times it had sizable hollows scooped out of its trunk. The hollow was filled with pea-sized crystals of windshield glass that glittered like a bowl of diamonds. The palm trees in the center of Victory Drive had the same sort of scars, and so did the oaks on Abercorn. Well, in the same scene where Cusack describes the city as gone with the wind on masculine, he also says that it's full of people who are all heavily armed and drunk. Oh, man. That scene at the party, um, which going back to the movie, I did like that in the movie when it's all these old women like pulling out their little tiny guns. Oh, yeah. She's, she's like, the gun she's like waving it around. And yeah. Like, <laughs> Everybody else is laughing and John Cusack's like, holy shit. Like he keeps like ducking out of the way and everyone else is, thinks it's hilarious. A small way that's emphasizing his outsider-ness that like, yeah, these mm-hmm. old women waving her gun around is what are you worried about? But then I keep thinking about that sense of knowing that you're talking to somebody who you deem as an outsider, like the way that it would bring out that performance in you, right? So not to say that you wouldn't do that normally, but the way that I feel like I've just the way that it might amplify the character of yourself that you've created. Suddenly... You are Savannah, so you got to... You got to do the Savannah thing. Well, I know that Mm -hmm. living where I live, I've become much more American than I was at any point when Mm -hmm. I was living in America. Just happens. In what ways? Um, I'm more obnoxious, believe it or not. No, I don't know. I don't know. But my my voice gets harsher when I'm around people who aren't from America. I get more nasal. I feel like there is something to it. Like, again, I felt when I moved to Syracuse, I was more Alabama than I had ever been in my life. Because Mm -hmm. as long as I was in Alabama, I made efforts 
to not be it. To not right? be because Alabama. Because I didn't yeah. want to be, I wanted to be anything but Alabama. But then mm-hmm. I get to Syracuse and using y'all in the classroom became yeah. a way to keep the students engaged, right? Because yeah. I was, it was interesting. A thing that uh-huh. was, had never been interesting about me had suddenly become interesting in that yeah. environment. Yeah, I, I find saying things like, you know what, I sure would kill for a mess of collards right now. I, I could I could use some collard greens right now. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and I can yeah. see how if you like thinking about the book and the film and that sense of even in the book, Joe Odom being like, who's going to play us in the movie? Mm-hmm. Even in the book, there's an awareness that you are playing a version of yourself for posterity's sake. <laughs> this is the Savannah that we want you to see and write about. Again, the, it's yeah. the ethnographer thing. The minute somebody knows you're doing the study, I mean, it just necessarily changes the things that are happening. Thinking about that and that sense of Southern identity and all those moments where we're getting these really, again, we keep saying rich because that's how it feels. Like these deep, Mm -hmm. these deep colors, right? From these characters who are playing versions of themselves. So speaking Uh, of um, playing versions of themselves. Are we getting to the Frank Underwood in the room? Nathaniel, what did you have to say about Frank Underwood? I mean, uh, Jim Williams. I mean, um, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Okay, so a couple of things here. First, I should notice that the author of the book does not like Spacey's performance. He said somewhere he gave a very bad performance. And apparently when they were making the movie, he said to Spacey, I can give you tapes of Williams speaking. And Spacey said, oh, no, no, I've got tapes. And then when he did the movie... It sounded so unlike Williams, and the author says, well, I didn't know what happened until I realized that he was using tapes from the fourth trial, which was a point where Williams was heavily medicated, and so his voice was slower and deeper, and so Spacey's voice here is based on that last thing, although those of us who have seen House of Cards recognize it's a dry run for his Frank Underwood accent. He's using the voice. You know, like that that sort of like evolutionary chart thing where it has like mm-hmm. chimpanzees at the beginning and people sort of start to yeah. walk upright, yeah. you know? It's it's the middle of that. It's the middle of that mm-hmm. chart. Like at the at the chimpanzee level is Foghorn Leghorn. And then it's Kevin Spacey and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And then when it's standing upright, it's Frank it's Underwood. Frank Underwood, yeah. You can't talk about a Spacey movie now without talking about the actions that were brought against him from multiple people. And it makes this performance a lot more sort of meta-textual than I think it may have been at the time to most people. Because he's playing a man who, frankly, preys on disadvantaged young guys. He's playing a man who lives in a glass closet. And by sheer coincidence, Kevin Spacey was living in a glass closet and preying on young guys. I actually think Spacey is quite good in this movie, but he's just doing what he does normally. With an accent. With an accent, yeah. It makes it really uncomfortable because like, he's hitting on John Cusack's character for the entire movie. It also adds this other unseen at the time, now seen layer 
which mm-hmm. uh, somewhat pun intended with the painting in the film he like takes John Cusack down to the basement and there's this painting and then he says oh it, it's a paint over so they really leaned into that theme of like yes. appearances and painting over but knowing what we know now again about Kevin Spacey as the person it adds another layer to that coffee table book of the room in the room doesn't it well, you know because it does mm-hmm. and to take that even a step further I don't want to waste too much time talking about contemporary issues but taking that a step further they double down in an explicit way that isn't quite there in the book on the idea that the jury is going to convict Williams because he's a gay man well that was space template when all of the allegations about him came out it was precisely to come out and say oh well I'm a gay man and that's why I'm being persecuted Right. It's exactly the same thing. He used this movie as a template for his own defense. (laughs) (laughs) He willed it into existence. (laughs) Oh, he's a little doll. Help! Help! Get him, dog! Help! Mountain lion, bobcat, coyote! What the hand feathers? I never could hear no weasel with all that hooping and hollering going on. Hey, dog! Help! Where, 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 where is he? Where, where, where is he at? Where? <laughs> huh? <laughs> Why, it's no- I say it's nothing but a scraggly little old limp-picking weasel. Let's pivot away from Spacey and talk about the other people because they're all very good. John Cusack is good. He looks like he's flirting with everyone in the movie, especially the Lady Shibley, but that's because she's amazing. I really expected at the end of the movie when they're at the funeral and John Cusack is standing there and then he turns and looks back and he kind of looks at the camera and we find out he's looking back at Minerva. Like I was really almost expecting him to speak directly to the camera a la high fidelity. Like the way he looked (laughs) at the camera, I'm like, oh, here we go. He's going to provide us some kind commentary after all of this i have learned that (laughs) (laughs) but no john Um, cusack was really good for this role i think he was well cast it also has jude law in one of his very very early roles as billy hansen looking very (laughs) schwai i've got to say a little bit underfed but that's the role i loved when we see him which they kind of collapse this in the movie like it's all like at the at the christmas party that jude law danny's character comes in and is throwing a tantrum and he smashes this bottle and then he turns to john cusack and he's like watch yourself <laughs> i mean i have to say when jude law showed up i was just like what the fuck like, just not yeah. expected jude law with yeah. a confederate flag tattoo on his arm <laughs> yes <laughs> like what is happening Stevie's dad from Malcolm in the Middle plays the tour driver at the very beginning of the film. The guy who plays Stevie's dad from Malcolm in the Middle, yes. I do not know his name, but I just just wanted to let y'all know. This is the kind of deep information that we like to bring on this podcast. So it's got a really good cast. Eastwood obviously is a very competent director. It is a long movie. It's 
two yeah. and a half hours. It's about as long as one of our regular podcast episodes, which all of our listeners can say is probably about 30 minutes too long. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I mean, I mentioned this before we were recording, but it's weirdly long, but it skips so much of the book. Yet I felt like the book went by a lot faster than the movie did. Yeah. And the movie really plays up the voodoo. The actual first mm. character we see is Irma P. Hall as Minerva. Talking oh. to the squirrels. Talking to the squirrels. And then at the end, she provides a book into that. Talking about genre, talking about Southern Gothic, mm -hmm. to me, there's a sense in which I feel like the movie's almost more Southern Gothic than the book, because the movie really leans into the weirdness and eccentricity and in a stylistic sense, almost as well. And it leans into the voodoo really heavily. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of that is just by the very nature of being a visual medium? Well, maybe, but in the movie, for instance, the guy that walks the invisible dog, he's walking an invisible dog on a leash. That's not in the book. That's not what was actually happening. What was happening is he was walking and people would just say, oh, you walk in the dog. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he'd turn around and pretend to talk to it. But in the movie, Eastwood's like, no, he's got to have a leash with a collar on the end of it, and he's walking it like that, which takes the bizarreness up a level, I feel. Right. Okay, so Minerva in the book, yeah, she, she does voodoo and stuff, but she's also very interested in money. She's interested in getting numbers. But in the movie, that's all taken out. She is just your sort of generic, wise, mysterious old black woman who does voodoo. Mm -hmm. That's right. kind of what she is. So that's what I was thinking. The film, it's like the cliches are definitely more cliche. And like, we mm -hmm. haven't talked a lot about race and class, but I, I think about what you're saying about Minerva. And it's also how I felt a little about Danny. Mm -hmm. Danny, problematic as he is in the book, is more than just like volatile, drunk redneck with the Confederate flag on his arm. He gets a little more. But in the film, he really... He's nothing. You know, he's, he's yeah. he is the cliche driving the Camaro. Yeah, yeah even his yeah. entrance again at that party, like it's just out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then he says, watch yourself. And then he leaves. <laughs> what do y'all think about the way that magic works in this movie? I'm specifically thinking about the scene where Williams has the heart attack and dies in the book. It's kind of presented as, oh, yeah, people said he fell at the same place. But as everything in this book does that pertains to the supernatural, it's got multiple layers of deniability at play. He wants you to be enchanted by the idea, but he's not going to make the claim. In the movie, because it's a visual medium, possibly, Williams falls down. He looks over and he sees Jude Law bleeding out of his mouth. And Jude Law lifts his head, <laughs> grins at him. And then lays his head back down. <laughs> so that weird. moment felt so silly. And like the right. music that's playing during that scene adds to the silliness. It's so goofy, but it's it like so leaning so hard into the voodoo thing in a way that maybe even the rest of the movie wasn't doing. But like at this moment, Eastwood felt the need to do. Why is that, do you think? I didn't see it as any more when they're out in the in the graveyard. Like, I think, like, all of it's accentuated a little bit more. Maybe it just seemed more accentuated because of Jude Law is in the scene, especially because <laughs> we haven't seen him in, like, two and a half hours. Yeah. Looks That's up, smiles, 
That should be a meme, I feel. You know, like Jude Law bleeding out of his mouth, his little smile coming up. (laughs) You could read it as this is what Williams is seeing upon his death and who knows what kind of wild synapses are going off in his brain. And what he sees is Danny on the rug. So is that last shot of that scene, which is a God shot looking down on both of them and then Danny vanishing, is that William's soul leaving his body and looking down, looking back at himself? Um, I'm not prepared to make that claim. Something. Is part of that whole heightening thing, though, right? This movie takes everything and it dials it up. So the film amplifies things that are there. Okay. Can we talk about the Gadsby thing? So sport, sport. So (laughs) that is in the book because Mm -hmm. Williams calls Danny sport. And it was interesting in the book because it's like, I mean, Williams is very much Gatsby. He's Mm -hmm. new money. He's playing this version. And then he dies in this Mm -hmm. kind of wrapped up with a murder. And then the film really takes that sport and amplifies the Gatsby that's already there. And sport doesn't just get said over and over and over. It gets written down in a note. Just in case you weren't listening, it gets... It was so heavy-handed. This man of mysterious wealth that sort of is an outsider, nouveau riche, that comes in and sort of enjams the system in a way. and, And yeah, in the movie, how often he said sport in his weird Mm -hmm. Georgian accent. Mm -hmm. Sport. Sport. But what's interesting is that Williams, the real Williams, did use that word. And it kind of goes back to the coffee table book. It's like, (laughs) is Williams purposefully drawing on the character of Gadsby because Mm -hmm. he sees himself in Gadsby? Has the real person adopted the mannerism? Very simulacra, like very the hyper real, like all that shit. Um, Yeah. And then you have the parties as well. Uh, the very mm-hmm. exclusive parties that everyone yeah. wants to go to. Yeah. Even the way that the narrative moves between high society and low society is reflective of Gatsby, I think, where you've got mm-hmm. the people on the out in West Egg and then you have the people who lives in the, the ash heaps. Well, and I think, um, too, you can it, it is not a stretch to think of the character of John Berent or the character of John Kelso as a sort of caraway, too. Of oh, like uh-huh. a figure, yeah, you know, absolutely. like an totally. outsider that's simultaneously like fascinated and disgusted by this whole thing. And whose like own sexuality isn't there, but it's there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Exactly. The movie did, um, maybe wisely, I don't know, what do y'all think, uh, take out basically all of the Nazi stuff. Well, I mean, except you can see it in the drawer when he goes for there, the... Well, there's their iron there's cross in the drawer. But like, there's not this sort of emphasis on his fascination with nazi memorabilia in the movie as there is in the book in the book i feel like it's pointed out a lot a lot more often yeah i wonder if that was part of a bid trying to make williams more sympathetic and they knew that someone who hung nazi flags outside of his window would probably be a tougher pill for the audience to swallow as a sympathetic victim and so they were really wanting to lean into that I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, yeah. that's why I said, like, perhaps wisely. I don't know. It depends. But in a narrative about the eccentricities of eccentric people, it is an eccentricity that they pretty 
presently remove. I was trying to find the quote, and this is at the trial, the first trial, and Spencer Lawton, the the DA, says there's something else about Williams too. He has a house full of German Lugers cocked and loaded all the time. He has a Nazi hood ornament on the desk to his study. He has a Nazi officer's ring with a skull and crossbones on it. And then, yeah, we have the the background story of when he hung this Nazi flag outside his door because they were, what, were they filming something? or They were, they were filming to... something mm-hmm. outside, yeah. Yeah, and he didn't want it outside of his house, so he did that, so it kind of, like, ruined the shot or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like in a weird way that speaks to why it's probably not in the film, which is mm. reading about a Nazi flag is very different than having to see one. That's a good point, which is probably why we only see it just briefly. Like you just briefly see an Iron Cross and thing. But for a book slash movie that's so interested in identity, that's not an insignificant layer to add on to that, considering the ideology is so wrapped up in identity. And the narrator of the book talks about that sense of power and like Mm -hmm. that sense of being the like white wealthy in a position of power and that there is a certain kind of man who says oh no i'm just doing it in fact i can think of lots of uh, men in the south who i've encountered like this i'm just playing devil's advocate i'm just you know but what if hitler is right like those yeah, people yeah. are very real and yeah well, what about the wrong. economic improvements he brought to germany <laughs> oh my god what well, is isn't, isn't, <laughs> like i was i was I was thinking there's a there's a, a very, very rich man in, I think, Texas, I'm not sure, who has a whole garden full of statues of dictators and all sorts of Nazi memorabilia. He's friends with Clarence Thomas. And his whole thing is, oh, well, I want to have a private museum so people can see all the horrible things that happen in history. But you've mm-hmm. got to wonder about someone who surrounds himself with relics of and yeah, I think Williams is is well. This is the interesting thing to me about the book that's not in the the movie. It's this idea of improving Savannah. So Williams is counterpoint mm. to another very rich man, and they both of them are restorationists. They want to restore Savannah, and they both of them do it with ostensibly noble reasons. But in both cases, we have reason to doubt their motives. There's a suggestion that maybe these very, very rich men who are improving Savannah are really doing it for their own ego and their own will to power, which, again, will to power takes us to the Nazi appropriation of Nietzsche Mm -hmm. and the idea of the strong ubermensch who can control the world. Well, and also the idea of restoration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Make Savannah great again? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, that's not no. that's not explicit or overt at all in any of his like things that's specifically said about him. But again, just this detail of him collecting Nazi memorabilia, it, it makes you sort of yes. think about it. Yes. And it's part of why I bristle mm-hmm. about romanticized pictures of Southern gentility. Right. Mm-hmm. Where isn't it interesting and fascinating that they're a bunch of fucking racists. There's so much hate there and it's irritating. Like I, I'm thinking of somebody who I know where if you met him, you'd be like this charming motherfucker. Like he is a uh-huh. character. He, he's very much, except for like a, a down home redneck version of definitely not Southern gentility. But if you met him, you'd be like, isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? 
But eventually he would tell you that a woman's purpose is to have babies. So you're not yeah. fulfilling your purpose. Yeah. Kind of, again, it's like the South is one big drag show. It's like mm-hmm. all of interesting white Southern gentility is really just the veil of a lot of oppression that happens mm-hmm. in the South. That's exactly, I think, one of the pr- things that the Lady Shapley does is she punctures all of that. In the book, we have the scene where she talks about the cover charge for the club. And the cover charge is only applied to black people. White people don't have to pay it. And she's very, I mean, she is a she's a, a sort of dissonant note in all of this Southern gentility. And I think, let's talk about the cotillion, because the cotillion is really interesting. It is mostly well-to-do African-American citizens of uh, Savannah, who wanted to have their own cotillion, which is great. And they make a point of saying that they do a minuet, which none of the other cotillion-like things do. They make a point of saying that girls there can never have been arrested. They have to be virgins. They're performing Southern gentility. And one of the interesting things about that scene in the movie is the Lady Chablis blows in and blows up all of that pretense by spreading rumors about one of the girls, by dancing (laughs) this very sexual dance. What she's doing here is she's going in and she's taking all of this pretense of Southern gentility as adapted by this upper class group. And she's saying, no, this is all a sham. You're all ultimately me, at least in the eyes of Savannah. Well, the first question uh, she asks to that man who she's like, oh, can I sit here with you, honey? Yeah. Uh, have you ever been arrested? Yeah. The, all, all of which is to, these, these masks of gentility occur throughout the Southern thing. One of the things that the movie does is it, it does call into question gentility itself as a virtue. Oh, for sure. Right. Well, I don't have much more to say about the movie. Um, the focus seems to be... I don't know. Do you think the movie focuses on something different than the book? I I feel like in both, the focus is still sort of Savannah as a whole. Yes, I think so. With the caveat that the movie moves the murder into a much more central position Mm -hmm. where it, it occurs much earlier. It occurs much quicker where the book takes a long time to even get to it. Yeah. Yeah. And the sort of uh, jurisprudence aspect of that part of the plot you know, there again, there's that one chapter titled Trial, which is um, kind of goes extensively into it, but then it sort of leaves it behind and it becomes less and less important. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're absolutely right, like the, the second two hours of the movie is basically just a sort of like it's law a courtroom and order. drama. Yeah, yeah, the courtroom mm-hmm. drama, exactly. Yeah. And in the book, it's it's like, yeah, there's that murder, but it, there's like a lot of murders, it feels like, mm-hmm. and death in the book. <laughs> And um, I think it was in that interview that I read where it's like murders happen frequently. And I feel like that's true. Like, I feel like when I mm-hmm. visit Sand Mountain, Alabama, and I hear my partner's parents, it's like, oh, yeah, he got murdered and thrown in the river there. You know, it's like, yeah. It's, and in fact, it reminds me talking about like docu-series. We watched Alabama Snake, which takes place in um sand mountain and i guess i'll add that to my recommendation it was really great but it's definitely depicts i think a very real issue in those rural southern spaces which is violence against women i would always hear people talk about you know the city as this dangerous place you know in the south (laughs) i always felt a lot more scared 
in the South than I ever have in a city. Because oh, yeah. in the city, there's people everywhere and I'm one of many. We're in the South, mm-hmm. you know, you're driving a back road. Like I remember I would drive back roads from Tuscaloosa to my dad's house. And sometimes I would see this truck and he would fly this giant Confederate flag behind him. Mm-hmm. And I would think like, oh God, I hope my car doesn't break down. You yeah. know? Yeah. One of the sort of dirty secrets uh, about film discourse because we always talk about how like horror movies depict rural areas as being dangerous and blood drenched and we academics like to tut tut and go look at how they're look at how they're mistreated no rural areas are dangerous and blood drenched they're just dangerous places to be and i feel like if people didn't think that was true before 2016 but in some ways i feel like now it a lot of things that you that if you were in those southern spaces you knew people felt and you knew was a reality for quite a few people the rest of the country learned that that like yeah. no these are these are beliefs that 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 people hold and and going back to like to tie a bow on this nazi flag that williams is carrying that that's one thing that the movie doesn't get at the movie is very interested in maybe psychosexual dynamics but it's not interested in the political valence of those psychosexual dynamics. Uh, whereas Nazism is a deeply psychosexual thing. Uh, it, it, well, and it's directed by Clint Eastwood, which I'm not saying is, is a Nazi, but we know he's like super conservative to the mm-hmm. degree that I could see him sort of being blind to this reading that we're looking at in the book, like mm-hmm. literally would never occur to him. But yeah, all of the stuff on uh, machismo and mm-hmm. gender, yeah, that's gonna like that's gonna shine very brightly for Clint Eastwood. Get up. Get off my lawn. Listen. Thank you. Get off my lawn. And we're back. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Projectionist Lending Library, in which we talked about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent and the subsequent film adaptation directed by Clint Eastwood. We are going to be on our way out making our recommendations. I just wanted to introduce us all one more time before we do so. Um, I'm Eric, and I'm here with my co-host. And Nathaniel. And our guest tonight... Steph. Steph, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have your voice and perspective on this. I think it made it so much richer. That seems to be the word that we are using a lot tonight. Before we leave, we always like to sign off with a a recommendation or two. Steph, what did you have to recommend? I haven't done a lot of like reading lately. In fact, it was interesting because this was one of the first things, new things that I read in a while that wasn't theory and like wasn't philosophy. Okay, no. I do have a recommendation. I taught it this semester. It's a book called Assholes of Theory. Um, It's really good and funny. I taught it in a class where we were talking about like what we owe to each other. And um, he constructs a theory of what it means to be an asshole. And then he applies that in various ways. And then of course, after like Donald Trump, I think he's 
written a revised version and <laughs> talked about that. But it is pretty funny, but also just a really cool treatment of ethics. I mean, it's definitely in conversation with like Kant and like lots of other virtue ethics and all that good stuff. So I really enjoyed it. And I have to say students really loved it. I think in part because they could see the behaviors. Sometimes we see ourselves in the behaviors right. described, but I think more fun, we like to ascribe that that word to other people. So yeah. And I have another rec is to visit uh, dinsho.org where you can go and read and learn more about World War II, Japanese American incarceration, which of course is what I'm focused on in my research. And I think part of what interests me about that boundary between fiction and nonfiction and the way memories work, you can actually go and listen to tons of oral histories from Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in World War II. And Dinsho has a number of short videos and they're really doing incredible work, not only to commemorate a history that has been so sanitized and really misrepresented, but also to play an active role in continuing to fight for justice for not just Japanese Americans, but other folks who are being um, oppressed and continue to be incarcerated, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. so Could, yeah, so visit dinsho.org. Dinsho.org. It's, cool. it's yeah. cool. Could you spell that for our audience? D-E-N-S-H-O. And it's actually, you know, it's Japanese and it and it's like to pass down. So it's an online archive, but it's really about, um, well, it's an open access digital archive. But like mm. I say, I really see it as, as more than that. It's a movement and it's doing something pretty important, which is putting voices. You know, you, you actually talked about voices and having my voice. Right. And, and that's really where, where I've been working in my scholarship is thinking a lot about like vocal rhetoric and, and what, what happens when we don't hear the voices of like, you know, people who actually experience the events or, or those voices gets translated through academic discourse. You know, we mm. obviously lose a significant amount of meaning. So yeah, Dinsho is cool because they're, they're giving access, not just to voices, but also, you know, um, paintings, right. From folks who were incarcerated, like lots of cool photographs, just really um, showing a much kind of a, a polyphonic, mm. if, if I may, um, <laughs> view of uh of 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 a pretty misunderstood historical event so yeah. go there okay denshow.org i guess i can go next as at least i know nathaniel knows I'm, I'm very 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 excited about a movie coming out in a couple of months called oppenheimer you know by christopher nolan i love christopher nolan this is a point of contention between uh, Nathaniel and I, uh, and and then like a lot of the research I do about like the nuclear age and like sort of what the bomb wrought sort of metaphysically for for thinkers at the time. So I'm super excited about that. Um, so I've been slowly making my way back through like a little bit American Prometheus, the Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Uh, Sherwin. Um, I read it for my dissertation, but obviously. A lot of stuff you read for your dissertation gets sort of like lost in the muck of everything else you read. So I've been sort of enjoying that again. Um, and it's fascinating. It, it, it won the Pulitzer Prize. I don't know exactly what year it came out. It was like late 80s, I think. But, you know, it, it, childhood through his education period and then obviously the development of the bomb, but then also um, his sort of 
commitment to pacifism and disarmament and stuff that follows and then how he gets investigated by McCarthyites and stuff because uh, all of this stuff. So it, it's really fascinating. Mm. Nathaniel, what do you got? Well, uh, I have I, – I think I have two things. Let's see here. Um, a while back, I watched through the entire Paradise Lost trilogy, beginning with Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. From 1996, it's directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. It's about the West Memphis Three. So mm. if, oh. if you're familiar with this, in, in a little town called West Memphis, these, these boys were horrifically, horrifically murdered. And suspicion very quickly fell on these three boys, uh, teenagers, who were kind of outcasts. They were kind of odd in their own sorts of ways. And they wound up being convicted of these murders, whether or not they were actually guilty. And they spent several, several years in prison before finally being released on a kind of a technical plea deal. I'm not going to recommend the whole trilogy because I think that as the trilogy goes on, it falls into this sort of true crime rut. The first movie, though, was commissioned while the trial was ongoing, and it was supposed to be about why these three boys committed the murder. And then over the course of making the documentary, the filmmaker came to the conclusion that they hadn't done it and that there was a miscarriage of justice going. And so that first movie is really good. Now, I will say it's very, very harrowing. They don't – I mean they show – crime scene photographs. They show all sorts of things, but it's really worth watching if you're interested in sort of satanic panic stuff, if you're interested in the way that the justice system railroads innocent people into prison. Even if you don't watch the other two documentaries in the trilogy or the West of Memphis documentary, which Peter Jackson produced and which I think is not very good, uh, although they all have interesting stuff in them. So there's that. Other than that, like my readings cratered. I'm reading a book by a guy named Elliot Pattinson right now uh, called Bone Rattler. Uh, Pattison, P-A-T-T-I-S-O-N, called Bone Rattler. It's a mystery of colonial America. Ooh. It's about a, a Scottish guy who who gets uh, convicted of a crime and taken to America on a on a boat, and there's a murder. So there's your murder mystery recommendation. It's very strange. I'm not that far into it, so it's not a strong recommendation, but it's it's a strange little book, uh, and I'm enjoying it so far. So that's what I've got. Excellent. Um, one more time, I'd just like to thank Steph uh, Parker for joining us tonight as we yes, talked about thank you. Um, these texts, and thank you all. Y'all, thanks so much for having me. I just want to say it was an absolute blast, and just how um nice it is to just read a book and then like sit down and talk to people about it yeah. um you don't real like and not in teacher mode right where you have mm. where you have an agenda and you have all these things that you know you want to hit it's just lovely so yeah so thank yeah. you for having thank you so much this was delightful this is delightful uh eric what do we have next time do you know i what do we have next time in a lonely place Ooh, in a lonely we're gonna place. have another guest i heard so. that i heard that like a big loser was gonna join us. <laughs> just i just heard total, it was this guy and he was just like oh you know just just total car crash of a person just gonna yeah. just roll through our podcast <laughs> we're yeah. probably gonna talk yeah. about we're probably gonna talk about uh doug funny and matchbox 20 so <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
does not surprise me. <laughs> so, thank you again. Um, and maybe maybe we can have you on again sometime. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's fun. So. Loop me in when you start doing your um, sci-fi stuff. Yes. That'll yes. be yep, that'll be next season. We'll definitely next keep season. you posted. Thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you next time on the Projectionist Lending Library. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. at the Projectionist Lending Library. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at PLLibPodcast. You can find us on Instagram at PLLPodcast. You can find our Facebook page at the Projectionist Lending Library. And finally, you can email us at projectionistslendinglibrary at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out if you have any feedback, if there's any particular book or adaptation you'd love to have us cover or anything at all. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope to catch you next time.